You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. All right, good morning, y'all. Can y'all hear me, everybody? All right, I'm going to be reading with y'all. Oh, I'm Treasure McLean. I'm a part of the McLean Community Group. And we'll be reading in Ephesians 5. I believe it'll be on the screen if you don't have it, I think. Um, and so it's Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Okay. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as a church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might be might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Uh, well, my name is uh, Brandon. Uh, thanks for having me, welcoming me here. Uh, my my role, the reason I'm here, uh, is that I, I serve as the uh, executive director for Redeemer Network. Uh, Redeemer Odessa, your namesake, came from uh, being part of the Redeemer Network. Now, I've been doing it for about a year, and, and when churches ask me to come and preach, typically this is what they say. They say something like this, hey, why don't you come and just talk about church planting? Or um, a psalm. Pick a psalm, come to a psalm. You know, something easy. Rarely do they say, hey, listen... We've got this really complex and controversial passage on marriage. Can you come and tackle that one for us? But here we are. And so um, I, I thought that the best way to open this up, hey, how can I raise this up a little bit? Uh, sorry, forgive me. I'm 45 and my eyes don't work uh, quite the, there we go. Um, that's too much. I wanted to start out, though, by, by telling you guys a story. Uh, of the first 18 months uh, of my marriage. Uh, my, my wife and I, uh, Amanda, we met. Uh, a few years later, we started dating. We have radically different stories about how we went from friends to dating. Uh, if you want the fun version, I can give that one to you. If you want the true version, uh, ask my wife afterwards. But we did. We started dating, um, and eventually we got married. Uh, and then a couple of months into marriage, maybe two months, I had this moment where something happened, and I looked up, and I just thought to myself, oh, man, did, did I make a mistake? Oh, did I, did I marry the wrong girl? Oh, man, I married the wrong girl. 
Uh, and I wrestled with that. And I just said, I knew my issue was my issue. And so I didn't tell her what I was wrestling with. And for 18 months, we, I, I just kind of struggled in silence. And, uh, and then one night we we're having dinner at a family member's house. My family member told me they were getting divorced. And we got in the car and I couldn't take any longer. And so I just laid it out to her. And I didn't want to tell her what I was wrestling with because I loved her. And I knew that she would cry for three days. And I told her and she cried for three days. But then I got in the car, we lived in Dallas at the time, I drove back to Houston, and I sat down with four really good friends, we were at a Mexican restaurant right on Bellway 8, if that means anything to you at all, and I told them what had been going on, and all four of them, all four to a man, said something along the lines of, me too. Me too. You see, here's the deal, at 25, I had no idea how common this was. But at 45, with 20 years of Christian ministry under my belt, I know this. I know the thoughts of what did I do. The thoughts of who did I marry are far more common than we want to believe or admit. And for most of us, most of us, we're going to hit a crossroads at some point, And in that crossroads, we get to choose to lean in or to check out. And so here's the question I want to ask today. The question I want to ask and answer today is why is marriage worth fighting for? Why is marriage worth fighting for? Your marriage, why is it worth leaning in and fighting for? And I need more than sex and financial security, and so do you. So why is it worth fighting for? What I want to do is I want to get into the text. I don't want to let Paul's approach, Paul, the author of this letter, I want to let his approach in this text make our way to answering that question. Sound good? Excellent. Normally, there are no responses. Well done. (laughs) Well done. All right, verse 22, and here's how Paul's going to start. Paul's going to start out with some practical instructions, some very hands-on, grab-hold, practical instruction, and he's going to kind of build. And as he builds, eventually he's going to make his way into getting into the essence of marriage. And as he makes his way and builds the essence of marriage, when he gets there, he's going to answer our question. So let's jump in, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body, and is himself its savior. Now, As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. All right. Let's just pause and acknowledge this, that Paul starts out with two very challenging statements for us. Two challenging statements. One, wives submit to your husbands. Two, husbands are the head of the wife. These are challenging statements for us for two reasons, I think. One, one is because both have been abused. And that is a true statement. All across the world, all throughout history, including today, including in Odessa, Texas, chauvinistic and abusive men have masqueraded as Christians, pointing to this text as justification. It has happened. It is happening. Two, Two, the second reason that this is a challenging text for us is because in our culture, this feels demeaning. The thought of husband as the head of a wife and wife submit to your husband 
This rails against everything that sits inside of the air that we breathe today and feels demeaning. But Paul's vision for marriage that he is going to lay out is actually a radically countercultural vision to marriage, both in the ancient world and in the modern world that we live in today. And so I want to start with how is Paul challenging the modern vision of marriage right here? And here's how he's challenging the modern vision of marriage. Now, this section uh, is actually, it's an outgrowth of what came before it. And here's what I mean by that. The word submit, wife, submit to your husband, that, that's actually taken from verse 21 uh, right before it. And verse 21 is the end of one sentence in the Greek. So the New Testament written in Greek, we translate into English since most of us don't know um, Greek. But it's actually one sentence in Greek that began like this, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And one of the outworkings of being filled with the Spirit is wives submit to the husband. Husband as the head of the wife. You see, here's the thing. The Christian life, it's an invitation into the life of God. It's an invitation into the life of God, the rhythm, the harmony, the divine dance of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And there is order, and there is rhythm, and there is harmony, and that overflows into your home. So what does headship and what does submission mean? Every study that I could find out there, at least every respectable study, would say no less, no less than leadership. And, and not everyone's going to agree with this. That's my way of brace yourself. Not everyone's going to agree with this, but it includes having the final say. So leadership and having the final say, and I know, again, for some, this is going to feel demeaning that the wife should be led by the husband and the husband should be trusted to have a final say, that it's going to feel and sound demeaning, but it is not. It is actually incredibly Christ-like. What do I mean by that? It sounds a lot like Jesus in Luke 22 when he said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. It's incredibly Christ-like. And now husbands... This headship is not an unqualified headship. It is not a headship that doesn't come without qualification. It is qualified like this, as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself its savior. So, so what did Jesus' headship look like? It was a sacrificial and courageous headship. It was a sacrificial headship, willing to be sacrificed for the flourishing of his bride, the church. It was never a headship that was out for his good and his upbuilding, but always for the flourishing of another. Headship is sacrificial and it is courageous that as Jesus was willing to die for his bride, husbands are to be willing to die for theirs. And that is not a philosophical statement as Christ is the head of the church, and he exercised that headship by being torn limb from limb on a cross. That as Christ is willing to die, husbands are to be willing to die for their bride. So in real life, practically speaking, what does this look like? What does it look like for leadership, final say? What could this look like? Well, let, let, me, let, me, let me first say, like much of the Bible, most of the Bible, um, it is not going to drill down and get too granular, right? It's part of the beauty of uh, the scriptures and how the scriptures have been able to be understood and applicable and, 
encouraging, supportive, and challenging in every culture under the sun is that they, they lay out these principles that are to be applied in Odessa and in China and in Dubai. Right? But practically speaking for us, if we're trying to apply this, what does it look like? Well, let me give an example. Um, you're, you're buying a new car or a used car, but you're getting a new car, new to you. Um, and you're looking and your options are, uh, we, we've been minivan family for uh, a long time. I don't actually know it's been that long. I'm ready for our minivan days to be done. Um, but black minivan, blue minivan. Um, I really want the blue. My wife wants the black. Get the black minivan. It's a car. What color your car is does not matter. And that may be the most offensive thing I'm going to say today to some of you. And you should repent for that one also. It doesn't matter. Red, blue, black, doesn't matter. More personal to me, Mexican food or something else for dinner. I am always choosing Mexican food. If I'm emotionally stable in the moment, I am choosing Mexican food. My family, my wife included, do not always want Mexican food for dinner. It's okay to get a pizza. Once in a while. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Here's what this doesn't mean, though. Or let me add one more um, to get to the actual final say. But major life decisions, not blue, red car, not Mexican food or a burger, Major life decisions, when you disagree, trust your husband. When you disagree, trust your husband. Um, this does not mean, trust your husband, when you disagree, does not mean that you don't make decisions as a family and that your wife doesn't have serious and real input and have wisdom to be valued. Real life example from my family, a year ago, just over a year ago at this time, I was debating between two jobs. And it wasn't that we disagreed, it just wasn't clear to me which one to take. I, we, 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 and and um, it, it was, do we stay in local church ministry or do we take this position serving Redeemer Network in a more broad role? I, I love the local church. Um, she is beautiful and she is messy and man, as a pastor, she bites. But I love the local church and so does my wife but it just wasn't clear to me which one to take. But it was to my wife. And so I trusted her gut, and we leaned in, and that was a major ingredient in the decision-making factor for my family. And I'm so thankful, so thankful that we did. And I know that even with that, some of you are still recoiling at the idea of any kind of gender roles. That men and women being equal in dignity just as the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in dignity but distinct in role. I know that there are still some of us in this room recoiling at the idea of gender roles. But they were important enough for Paul to start and to end that way. The last verse that we read, verse 33, let each one of you, husbands, love his wife, and let the wife see that she respects her husband's. How does this challenge the modern vision of marriage? The challenge is like this. The modern vision of marriage says there is no distinction. It, it, it says this. this. This is the thesis that sits underneath the cultural modern vision. Equal dignity means equal role. But it's not true. 
It is not a logical sequitur that has to fit together. And Paul says, no, it's not true for the Trinity. It's not true for you. All right, let's keep reading. Verse 25, Paul's now going to pivot and challenge the ancient view of marriage. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, for us, generally speaking, this is not going to be too challenging a verse to understand, but in the ancient world, in Paul's day, um, this would have been, uh, that marriages in Paul's day, they were marked by a cold hierarchy. They were a cold hierarchy. They, They were basically, effectively, they were much more of a business relationship than anything else and the truth is that husbands, they, they, they weren't even fully expected to love their wives. And they certainly, certainly were not expected to be willing to die for their wives. And Paul here is saying that you are to love your wife in such a way, to such a depth, and to the degree that you'd be willing to die for your wife. Which if you can just kind of like... Like, like, take yourself out of 2023 Odessa, Texas. Put yourself back in the ancient world, in the city of Ephesus. Like, this is brand new. You are not going to find a line like this. Husbands, love your wife to such a degree, to the depth, in such a way that you'd be willing to die for your wife. You're not going to find that in the philosophical world of that day. You're not going to find it in the religious world of that day. You are going to find it Nowhere, And can you see why Christianity exploded in the ancient world? Like, that right there, like, it, part of the reason that it was a bomb that went off and is still going off around the world are lines like this one. Like, this line right here. That in every society, what Christianity did was it came in and it said, hey, listen, Listen, I, I, I know you value this, I know you value this, but there's a better way. There's a better way. A better way to live. And if Paul were here, I think he'd say this. I think he'd say, uh, women, um, if, if you don't want gender roles, but what, what, if, what if the complementary nature of husbands and wives, what, what, what if it actually led to your flourishing? Like, what if it made your life better? And he'd say to the men, hey, you, you want to lead? You know what that looks like? It looks like being willing to die for your bride. This is why Christianity went off like a bomb in the ancient world that is still exploding today. Let's keep reading. We'll start back in 25 again. 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present her present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. All right. This little section in the text is actually just notoriously difficult to interpret and understand. So let me try to define a couple of terms that are used here. First, sanctify and to cleanse. That, That is to make holy and to make acceptable to God. And then where it says washing with the water of the word. Um, uh, there, there are plenty who think that this is a reference to baptism, to be washed with water, baptism, washed with the water of the word, that the word is a reference to the, the, the Bible, you know, to so hold Bible studies in your homes on a daily basis or something like that. Um, but the word translated word is actually rhema. 
which almost universally um, is a reference to the gospel, um, and to give one example. And did you know that I was using this example, side note, at the end of your reading? You have no idea what I'm talking about, do you? Great. Um, 1 Peter 1, 24, 25. Um, As the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. That the point is that Jesus shows up preaching the gospel, drenching us in the gospel, and as a result, we're made holy and blameless without stain or wrinkle. And what this means for marriage, husbands, to drench your wife and your home, saturate it, soak it in the gospel. And when you do, here's what's going to happen. The gospel is going to change you both. Drench your wife, saturate your home in the gospel, and the gospel will change you both because marriage is supposed to change you. All right, when you if you say this or you have ever thought this, let me tell you what I don't want. I, I don't want a man or I don't want a woman who wants to come in and change me. If you think that, that means you don't understand the meaning of marriage. You don't understand the purpose of marriage. You need to be changed. And here's why this is so important. Do you notice where it says um, um, that you be presented without wrinkle? Without wrinkle? My wife and I are in our 40s now. I'm just, that's me looking for permission to keep going. Um, <laughs> my wife and I are in our 40s now. Uh, 45, barely 40. <laughs> uh, I did not have permission for that one. But, but wrinkles are showing up. They're just, they're just showing up. I mean, it's like every three weeks, you look in the mirror, you smile, you're brushing your teeth, oh, there's six more, right? They're just, they're just there, and they're coming, and they're coming for us, and they're not going to get any better. They're going to keep getting worse. Why? Because wrinkles are part of the decaying process, and they're not pretty. Like, no matter, like, we can go, oh, marks of wisdom, whatever, <laughs> They're just not pretty. And we all know it. And it's okay. This is a safe place for you to be you. I think. I don't know. If it's not, I'm getting in the car and going back to Georgetown today. So, But they're just not. But here's the point. When the gospel changes you, it doesn't just make you acceptable to God. It makes you beautiful in the sight of God. When the gospel is drenching your home, here's what's happening. As your body is decaying, your soul is undecaying. It is being unwrinkled. And as 2 Corinthians 4 would say, the outer self is wasting away, the inner self being renewed day by day. The gospel, through the vehicle of our marriage, changes you. But here's the challenge. And here's the the rub on this one, the real-life collision on this one. The real-life collision is that we don't want to change. We don't want to. I don't want to. I presume you don't want to. And the the problem with marriage, and problem's not the right word, the the real-life difficulty in being married is that marriage is often this mirror that just sits right up in front of you. But you know what I want to do? I, I don't want to take honest stock of what's in the mirror. So I just kind of turn around, and then there's my marriage. Hold that mirror behind me as I walk away from it. 
instead of just embracing that I need to change, and I need to change in a number of areas, and slowing down, turning around, looking at that mirror that is my marriage and saying, okay, where, where do I need to be purged and sanctified and unwrinkled? All right, let's keep reading. Paul's going to keep pulling on the thread of loving your wife as Christ loves the church, but he's about to start making a turn and get into the essence of marriage and thus the answer to our question. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Husbands, cherish your wife. Cherish your wife. And I, I, I know, um, you know, I, I, obviously I don't know everyone in this room, but, but here's what I can take a wild stab at, and I bet you I'm 100% right. But in this room, there are people who, who here cherish your wife and are going, I sure wish my husband would have. Maybe our marriage wouldn't have ended the way that it ended. Or people who are 25, 35, 45, or 55 going, I sure wish somebody would have cherished me. And to both of you, I want you to know that we're going to get to hope for you in the end. And how even a text on marriage can be a buoy to your soul. But right now, what I want to say is that when it says cherish your wife, that the word literally means to feel warm, that your wife should feel warm around you. That when she's in your presence, she should know that this is a person for whom cherish and just make her feel warm. And a quick word to husbands, give yourself some grace. Give yourself some grace here. I, I don't know a man who just goes, man, I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm just knocking it out of the park. How it worked? Nah, as a husband. I am crushing it. Wives, your husband generally feels far more insecure about the quality of husband that he is than he'll ever let on to you. And some direct, honest encouragement will go a long way. Always critiquing, always complaining, that's not that motivating. Honest, direct encouragement. Not flattery, not lies, but honest encouragement goes a long, long way. But I want you to see here in this text that he starts making this turn, that Paul is starting to make this shift to the oneness between Christ and the church, right? Nourishes it. Um, no one hates his own body, nourish it as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. He starts bridging this link between Christ, the church, the, the oneness, and why he's going to move in and drill that down in verse 31 and really start taking us to the essence of marriage because it goes back to Genesis 2 and he says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is Paul quoting Genesis 2, and in the original, the Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in, hold fast. It's a Hebrew word that essentially means covenant. It's into a covenant, that when you're entering into marriage, you are entering into a covenant. That relationships 
all relationships, they exist on a spectrum. On one end, on one end there is consumer relationships. On the other end, covenant relationships. And so let me, let me illustrate a consumer relationship. We live in Georgetown. We've been there for one year. From Houston, amazing Mexican food everywhere. Um, one restaurant in Houston in particular. But we moved to Georgetown, and we found this great little spot. It's actually the only good Mexican in, in Georgetown that we, that we found. Uh, it's called Blue Corn Harvest. We love Blue Corn Harvest. They have a great deal, half-off appetizer for happy hour. We just, we just love it. Um, when we want to go eat Mexican food, that is where we go as a family. We are deeply, deeply committed to Blue Corn Harvest. But let me tell you something. If they open a new Mexican restaurant that's got better food at better prices, I will instantly become deeply, deeply committed to that new Mexican restaurant. <laughs> Why? Because I'm a consumer. I'm a consumer at Blue Corn Harvest. They do not give me my food for free and say, we love you, Brandon. <laughs> they bring me a bill. But that's not what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant. It is an exclusive, permanent, legal, personal, binding, deep relationship. And here's how Tim Keller describes it. This is what um, Tim Keller, my personal hero, says or said. The essence of marriage then is not a declaration of present love. It's the binding promise of future love. It's a promise not to always feel warm and loving it's a promise to be loving, tender, faithful, and cherishing and serving, regardless of the ups and downs of emotions or circumstances through thick and thin. See, so here's the essence of marriage. The essence of marriage is not the declaration of present love. It is the promise of future love. When my wife and I were dating, there was this moment where I worked up the nerve and I got courageous and I looked her in the eye for the first time and I just said, Amanda, I love you. And I just nervously sat hoping she would say it back to me. And when I said I love you to Amanda, you know what didn't happen? We did not get married. That declaration that I love Amanda did not make us married. But on May 21st, 2005, we made a covenantal promise to always love one another. We made a covenantal promise that, that this covenant, this kind of union where we are fully known, fully loved, fully accepted, knowing that we need to change, we can be vulnerable emotionally, spiritually, physically. Now, this is what marriage is. It is a covenant, a promise of future love, but it's also a mystery Verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The, the word mystery here, it, um, it, it means to transcend uh, normal understanding, ultimate reality, that behind this object, there's this deeper meaning sitting behind it. And so why use the word mystery? Why would Paul use the word mystery? Well, mystery is a technical term for him. It's got a specific meaning that he's already defined for us. Ephesians 3, 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That marriage from Genesis 2 on was a foreshadow and taste of the global 
reconciliation in Christ. Jew-Gentile reconciled together in one body. People who throughout history, at points of history, have hated one another, now reconciled together in one body, with one hope, through one gospel, in one Christ. And then husband and wife are united in a bridegroom relationship, just as Israel and the nations, people who at points had hated one another, are united in a bridegroom relationship that the church with all nations as the bride and Jesus as the bridegroom, including you. And so how did he make you his bride? The answer is not by getting down on a knee, but by climbing up a tree, being torn from limb to limb, dying in your place in the ultimate act of sacrificial headship. He laid down his life to make his enemies his bride, not not because he found you attractive, but to make you beautiful. To make you, to make you gorgeous in the sight of God. And the day is coming when wrinkle will be no more. And you, the bride, will be presented to the bridegroom. When? At the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19. Did you know did, did you know that the Bible begins and it ends with a marriage? And in the middle of that story is the story of the bride and the groom, Christ and the church. Sinclair Ferguson, brilliant theologian, put it this way. He said, the Bible begins with a marriage. It ends with a marriage. The Bible is basically a love story. And see, here's why your marriage is worth fighting for. A marriage is a taste of the promise of the future love of Jesus for you, for your kids, and for your neighbors. This is the Bible's vision of marriage, that your marriage would be a taste of the present, but also the future love of Jesus, the love that isn't going anywhere for you, for you, your kids, and for the world. And so let me, let me land the plane like this. What does this mean for struggling marriages and for all marriages? Struggling marriages means this, that if your marriage is on the rocks, and I mean, and listen, I, I don't want to overstep my welcome as the, as the guest. But if you've gotten really good at showing up on Sunday with a pretty smile on your face, you've gotten really good at, at, at showing up at community group with a, with a wonderful smile at your face, on your face. But, but when you're home and you're alone, you know your marriage is on the rocks and it is not good. If, if that's you, I want you to see this. I want you to see that Jesus was in the rockiest marriage of all time. That he was in the rockiest marriage of all time. Like, if you've ever read any of the Bible, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find the church being incredibly fickle and unfaithful. And yet Jesus was exceptionally faithful and kind and gentle and loving and present with the bride, the church. You're going to see Jesus in the most 
the rockiest marriage of all time, and yet in the end we know that it will turn into the most exhilarating, glorious marriage of all time. Yours can too. Yours can too. And if you say, I've never even had the chance to experience that kind of a rocky marriage, I, I, I want you to know that you, you are in one. You are in one with Christ as the bridegroom. And you will partake of and enjoy for all of eternity what it is like to have the perfect husband, the perfect spouse, united together in him. And that can boo you today. But what about all marriages, right? So how do, how do we go from broken, rocky to where we want it to be, and what does this mean for all marriages? Well, first, roles matter. Roles matter. Embrace roles. Embrace the distinctions. It's part of the rhythm of marriage. That husband, if you want your wife to be physically present, make sure that she knows that she is cherished and loved, and not because you want something out of her, but because you cherish and love her. Wives, you want your husband to be emotionally present. Make sure he feels respected and empowered to lead. Second, expect to be changed. The gospel changes you, and marriage is this picture of the gospel where, where you walk in and you are changed. You need to be changed. It's this vehicle through which you become a different, uh, unwrinkled person. Fight the temptation of blame shift. We are so good at that. I mean, it is the artwork of humanity from the beginning that we know how to blame shift. Fight the temptation of blame shift, and then fight the, the pull to only complain and critique. Expect it to be changed. Be willing to look in the mirror and take honest stock of who you are and where you are. Third, embrace covenants. Embrace marriage as a promise of future love. It's not a business relationship. It's not a sexual partnership. It's not a consumer relationship. It is a covenant, a covenant through which eternity gets formed and shaped and molded inside of you. And then fourth, see the importance of the penultimate love that your spouse is to be the penultimate, the second, the next to last love in your life, that Jesus is the ultimate love of your life, the last and the deepest love in your life should be the true bridegroom and see yourself as the true bride. And C.S. Lewis has a wonderful quote on this. He says, listen, the, the way to make sure your wife is the penultimate love isn't to love your wife less, to love your husband less, it's to love your God more. It's to love your God more. Your marriage is worth fighting for because it's a picture, a taste of the future love of Jesus for the world. For the world. The love that took him to the cross and into the heart of hell. For you. To make you his bride. Let's pray.